It felt very strange to Nate to wipe perspiration from the back of his neck. Having grown up in Vermont, Nate was used to cold winters, sometimes with snow starting to fall by early November. This year, he sat on the wide wooden porch of Harper's parents' house, staring up at a bright blue sky. I'm sweating my balls off, he thought to himself. Whether he meant it literally or proverbially is unknown, as sometimes being completely omniscient is not to a narrator's benefit. Nate and Harper had started dating earlier that year, and things had been going well. So well, in fact, that when she asked if he wanted to come home with her for the holidays, Nate said yes without giving it a second thought. Harper's mom and dad lived in southern Georgia, which was the furthest south Nate had ever been in the United States, with the exception of a family trip to Disney World in Florida when he was ten. Dinner's ready. Y'all better come grab some before Rudy eats it all, Harper's Aunt Lucille called from the kitchen. Rudy, the most handsome of golden retrievers, gave an affirmative bark. Grandpa Clyde led the family through a somewhat tipsy grace that had begun to meander before Aunt Lucille ended it with an abrupt amen. Dinner was served, and everyone lined up to fill their plates. Nathan sidled up to Harper. Aren't you grabbing any turkey? She looked at him quizzically. Of course. This is just the veggie plate. He looked at the plate and then back at her grinning face. He was confused. The yams, corn, okra, and potatoes I totally get. Even the collard greens with bacon in them. He eyed the left side of her dish. Is that oyster dressing and mac and cheese? And is that a deviled egg? Those certainly didn't look like vegetables to him. She shrugged, but before she could say anything, her dad, who had been standing behind them, cut in with a chuckle. Down here it counts. Nate and Harper finished up in the buffet line in the kitchen, before joining the rest of the family at the large oak table in the family's immense dining room. As they sat down, Harper gave Nate a rueful smile. I probably should have explained some things or given you some kind of a heads up. Sorry about that. Noah smiled. Don't worry, Bay. I came prepared for any and all kinds of plates. He paused before patting his belly and giving his pants a light snap. These have an elastic waistband. Hello and welcome to History Unhemmed, a podcast that delves into and unravels the sometimes shiny, sometimes sinister side of fashion and dress. I'm your host, Felicia. Join me in taking a closer look at sartorial scandals, tailored taboos, troubling trends, controversial couture, and other wrinkles in fashion history. If today's episode leaves you wanting more information, be sure to check out a list of resources posted in the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Some of our content may be disturbing, inappropriate, or perhaps just a tad bit complicated to fully grasp for younger audiences. I also have the occasional potty mouth and a tendency towards some dangerously cheesy wordplay. Listener discretion is advised. It's the aftermath of a big holiday meal, and you, like our protagonists, Harper and Nate, have just eaten your weight in delicious and decadent gastronomic goodness. Thankfully, after such an indulgence, you can drag your full belly to the living room and flop out on the couch post-meal to recover from the itis in your nice, stretchy leggings or soft, cozy sweatpants. 
garments more than capable of accommodating this recent act of gluttony. Now, an elastic waistband in itself may not sound terribly complicated. As anyone who sews knows, it's as simple as making a tunnel and pulling an elastic cord or band through said passage. And yet, that little stretchy bit has a serpentine history steeped in industrial and technological innovation, warfare, theft, sports, and music. Rubber, in some form or another, has existed as early as 1600 BCE. Examples from this time have been found in what are today Mexico and Guatemala. The Olmecs, Aztecs, Maya, and other populations indigenous to Central and South America used it in a multitude of ways, including in the production of balls used in games played for entertainment and ritual purposes. These were not mutually exclusive. Records left by the Dominican friar Diego Duran, who lived from 1537 to 1588, describe a game played by the Aztecs that was still popular among them as late as the mid-16th century. Duran writes of it, One team put the ball through the hole of the stone on one side of the court, while the other side was used by the other team. The first to pass its ball through the hole won the prize. These stones also served as a division, for between them on the floor was a black or green stripe. This was done with a certain herb and no other. The ball also had to be passed across this line to win the game, because if the ball projected by the backsides or by the knee went bouncing along the floor and passed the stripe the width of two fingers, no fault was committed. But if it did not pass, it was considered a foul play. The man who sent the ball through the stone ring was surrounded by all. They honored him, sang songs of praise to him, and joined him in dancing. He was given a very special reward of feathers or mantles and breechcloths, something highly prized. But what lie most prized was the honor involved. That was his great wealth. For he was honored as a man who had vanquished many and had won a battle. The game Duran describes was called in Nahuatl, the Aztec language, Tlachli, and featured a ball made from the sap of the Castilla Elastica tree, or Panama rubber tree. The tree is native to Mexico, Central America, and the northern part of the South American continent. The liquid or latex found in the tree was mixed with the sap of another plant. A flowering vine, often called moonflower, or tropical white morning glory, to create a stronger and more resilient rubber. When I say latex here, I'm not talking about the shiny, stretchy material often associated with sex and subcultures, but rather just good old-fashioned tree juice. In 1735, French and Spanish scientists partnered on what would be called the Spanish-French Geodesic Mission, this endeavor was led by the French astronomers Louis Godin, Pierre Bouguet, and Charles-Marie de la Condamine, as well as Spanish geographers Jorge Juan and Antonio de Ulloa. Its goal was to determine whether the circumference of the Earth was greater around the equator or around the poles, and to get specific measurements. In May of that year, the expedition embarked across the Atlantic and then the Caribbean before landing on the coast of Panama. The team of scientists trekked overland to Ecuador. At some point, as so often happens in a group of academics, quarrels ensued. Said quarrels resulted in Charles-Marie de la Condamine separating from the group. I sort of envision him pulling an Eric Cartman-like scene where he gets mad at everyone and says something to the effect of, screw you guys, I'm going home, before storming off in a huff. Only he doesn't go home, he continues wandering around South America. It probably didn't go down exactly like that, but the thought amuses me all the same.
La Condamine would eventually rejoin the traveling party in Quito on June 4, 1746. On his lone sojourn, La Condamine came into contact with a few plants whose properties fascinated him, including Havea brasiliensis, or the rubber tree. La Condamine brought samples of Havea brasiliensis back with him to France and showed them to his peers at the Académie Royale des Sciences. The botanist François Fresno de la Gautaudière, a colleague of La Condamine, wrote what would be considered the first scientific paper on the properties of rubber in 1571. Le Condamine presented his colleague's paper as the latter remained in Guiana. The treatise also detailed rubber's varied uses. It was finally published in 1755. By 1800, this substance had made its first forays into the realm of personal adornment in Europe. A factory manufacturing rubber garters for ladies opened in 1803 in Paris. This material was still extremely unstable at this point, and any objects meant to be worn against the body need to have at least some heat resistance. I think you can tell where this is going. When exposed to heat or warm flesh, the already somewhat sticky garters got downright gluey. On colder days, they got stiff and very brittle. Not great. From France and Spain, rubber made its way north to England, not without a little help from the recently beefed-up English Navy. On April 15, 1770, the English scientist Joseph Priestley, more well-known perhaps for his experiments with oxygen, carbon monoxide, and such, wiped a pencil mark off a piece of paper using a product made and sold by the engineer Edward Nairn. Nairn was selling little blocks of plant-based rubber. Priestley made a footnote about Nairn's gadget in his 1770 work, A Familiar Introduction to the Theory and Practice of Perspective. And just like that, Priestley and the eraser have been forever linked. Nairn's name often gets left out of the conversation, and the rubber, as it's called in some English-speaking countries, frequently gets added to Priestley's already long list of accomplishments. Just be sure not to ask for rubbers in an American office supply shop. On a side, if you were remotely curious... And even if you weren't, I'm going to tell you anyway. The rubber condom first hit the market in 1855. Rubber found its way into clothing production around the first quarter of the 19th century. The first rubberized raincoat made its appearance around this time. Still frequently referred to as a Macintosh, the so-named jacket got its name from the Scottish chemist Charles Macintosh. However, the invention of said garment isn't exactly Macintosh's own. At about 18 years old, Sir James Sim, a Scotsman who would go on to become an esteemed surgeon, discovered that he could apply solvents derived from coal tar to rubber, creating a liquid coating that he could use to waterproof things like fabrics. Sim published an account of his discovery, but it doesn't look like he pursued it too hotly after publishing on it. Sim, by the way, lived from 1766 to 1843 and was also interested in developing waterproof textile dyes. An associate of Sim, the aforementioned Charles Macintosh, saw what he was doing and saw some major dollar er pound signs. In 1823, Macintosh acquired er, stole the patent for Sim's invention, and Macintosh's company produced the first rubberized raincoat in 1824. Rubber went from covering the outside of garments to being an important internal and structural material not too long after. There was a notable downside to Macintosh's new coats, however. They were coated in a byproduct of burnt coal, which, as it turns out, gave the garments a uh, distinctive odor. They stank. Rubberized raincoats to this day 
still have a particular smell, but thankfully, it is a far less offensive funk than that of Macintosh's first pieces. Furthermore, the coating used by Macintosh, while waterproof, still didn't hold up very well under very hot or very cold conditions. In the years leading up to 1820, the English engineer Thomas Hancock began to experiment with rubber solutions. By 1820, he had managed to develop fastenings for suspenders, gloves, shoes, and stockings. Around this time, he set up a factory on Goswell Road in London. With every one successful invention typically comes at least a couple of failed previous efforts. In this case, Hancock was left with a lot of discarded rubber. In order to deal with the waste materials, he created what he named a pickling machine. Actually, a masticator used to shred the scrap rubber into tiny pieces. The deliberately misleading name was intended to keep his machine a secret while saving him the hassle of having to deal with copyrights and patents. The prototype of Hancock's pickling machine held about three ounces of rubber, or about 85 grams. Operated by a single person using a hand crank, it was a wooden machine with a hollow cylinder studded with metal teeth and had an inner studded core. Within a year, he needed a bigger device that processed more rubber. The need led him to come up with a two-person version that held a pound or just under half a kilo of rubber. Foreshadowing developments to come, I'm going to point out that by 1841, Hancock's masticator had grown with his business. It could now process about 91 kilos or 200 pounds of rubber per load. He ended up patenting the device in 1837. The tinier bits that Hancock's machine produced were worked into threads which were blended with other fibers and items like shoes and boots. Hancock's threads were instrumental in the rise of a particular article of footwear, one that continues to grace the closets of fashionable folks all over the world today. The Chelsea boot, as it would come to be known, would not exist without its signature gussets. As the story goes, Queen Victoria was very fond of taking walks. Her royal shoemaker, Joseph Sparks Hall, came up with something that was easy to put on and to pull off of Her Majesty. J. Sparks Hall boots, or paddock boots, were suitable for traipsing around gardens and parks and would, a few decades later, become a popular option for horseback riding. The name Chelsea Boot was said to have been coined in 1831 by the London cobbler Thomas Cotton. Hancock obtained a license from Macintosh around 1823 to produce a two-ply waterproof material. By 1825, Hancock had patented a kind of faux leather, and in 1830, Hancock and Macintosh had fully merged their companies. Along with raincoats and cloaks, they produced hats and boots. In the 1830s, the American chemist and manufacturing engineer Charles Goodyear was experimenting with a process called vulcanization. Despite its name, I'm sad to say it had nothing to do with Star Trek. Vulcanization is a chemical process that strengthens and enhances the elasticity of rubber, improving the finicky material's ability to hold up under extremely hot or cold conditions. Between 1834 and 1839, Goodyear, who had little to no prior formal training in chemistry, became obsessed with trying to stabilize rubber. He put his family in a horrible financial situation, even doing a few bouts in debtor's prison. He cooked up rubber in pots and pans, in laboratories, and his own kitchen. Sounds very safe. What could possibly go wrong? His luck took a turn in 1839 when he was living in Woburn, Massachusetts, a hub of the rubber industry in the U.S. at the time. The story goes that he mixed rubber with sulfur on a hot stove, and instead of melting like he expected... 
the rubber stayed intact. In 1844, Goodyear received a patent for his discovery. Thomas Hancock's role in our story isn't over yet, though. Hancock allegedly got a hold of one of Goodyear's samples and did a little reverse engineering. About eight months before Charles Goodyear got his patent on January 30, 1844, Hancock took out a patent on the vulcanization of rubber in the UK. Yeah, he pretty much stole it out from under Goodyear's nose, taking advantage of the latter's financial problems and other complications. The word vulcanization was coined by William Brockton, an inventor, writer, and artist, and friend of Thomas Hancock. Brockton based the word off the name of the Roman god of fire and forge, Vulcan. The rubber band, made using vulcanized rubber, was patented in the UK on March 17, 1845, by Stephen Perry. As for Goodyear, his story comes to a pretty depressing end. Despite owning American and French patents, he was unable to really profit. He would end up losing the French patent due to legal problems, and his patents were constantly infringed upon. In December 1855, Goodyear was even imprisoned in Paris for debts after a company using his process failed. When he died on July 1, 1860 in New York, he was completely broke. This was a man whose inventions made millions of dollars for other people. In 1899, Frank Sieberling founded the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company in Ohio and named his business in Charles's honor. The mid-19th century saw the incorporation of elastic fibers into clothing, but still in small quantities at best. Rubber at that time was still expensive and not the easiest thing to come by. It was grown on plantations in the Americas and had to be shipped long distances, and most factories were still not equipped to process large amounts of the stuff. Those who could afford rubber items were unencumbered by the need for convenient clothing that one could take on and off by themselves. It filtered a little bit into women's undergarments, but did not provide the tautness that boned corsets did. It would still be some time before elasticized undergarments would catch on. Even after the discovery of vulcanization, rubber fibers used in clothing didn't hold up very well when washed, and buttons and drawstrings were still working out just fine, thank you very much. That's not to say Victorians weren't fans of rubber. In fact, rubber jewelry often made an appearance when someone was in mourning. Ebonite or vulcanite, as it was called, was worn during bereavement in place of more expensive jet pieces. A rubber boom took place in the last quarter of the 19th century, from about 1879 to 1912. In 1876, the English smuggled approximately 70,000 Havea brasiliensis seeds from South America to the UK. They germinated many of the seeds at Kew Gardens in London before dispersing the plants across the empire to India and Singapore. Havea brasiliensis also ended up in other places, including Sri Lanka and Indonesia. In 1876, the new Liverpool Rubber Company introduced beach shoes, or plimsolls. Plimsolls got their name from reference marks located on the hulls of ships, which indicated the maximum depth to which the vessel could be safely immersed when loaded down with cargo. Rather like the markings found in ships, lines on the shoes themselves, where the canvas uppers and rubber soles met, suggested that if the wearer stepped in water that passed above the point in question, one would end up with some very wet feet. These rubber-soled shoes marked the earliest iteration of the modern sneaker or athletic shoe. In 1892, the U.S. Rubber Company released a lace-up shoe with a canvas upper and a rubber sole. You may have heard of these, or might even be wearing them today. I'm talking about Keds. The 20th century saw a major bounce in rubber production. Spalding introduced rubber-bottomed basketball shoes in 1907. 
1909, a team led by Fritz Hoffmann at Bayer Laboratory in Elberfeld, Germany, introduced polymerized methyl isoprene, the first fully synthetic rubber material. Hoffman's invention made rubber more affordable and accessible than ever before. This started bringing it into more intimate spaces, like people's drawers. Well, their corsets anyway. The period following World War I, which lasted from 1914 to 1918, saw major developments in synthetic materials like plastic and rubber. I talked about the advent of plastics in episode 19 in the context of the fashion doll. It should go without saying that these inventions revolutionized far more than just the toy industry. After the war, rubber wasn't prioritized for military use and found its way into civilian homes across the U.S. and Europe. It was used in refrigerators, invented in 1913, as well as other hot new appliances and home goods. The automobile had been invented in 1886 by Carl Benz and expanded upon later by Henry Ford and his assembly line in 1896. These relied on rubber tires. And like I mentioned, rubber also began showing up in people's wardrobes. In 1908, the French engineer Paul Dubois developed a method of mixing rubber threads into cotton or silk fabrics, creating an early form of elastic webbed material. This development revolutionized women's undergarments. Arthur F. Shattuck, an American, would expand on Dubois' method in the 1920s, using synthetic rubber bringing costs down dramatically. Following World War I, which ended in 1918, Women's dress began to change quite strikingly. Gone were the tightly laced figures of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As a result of the new flapper style, corset companies were struggling to stay in business. The new silhouette du jour was flat-chested. Breast binders and bandeaux became very common. Elasticized fabrics or those incorporating rubber threads were ideal for this purpose. These new fabrics were also part of the shift from the corset to the somewhat less restrictive girdle. In the 1920s, a brand called Madame X made girdles and brassiers, a nod perhaps to the scandalous painting by John Singer Sargent, a Virginie Amélie Avenio Gautreau, in a figure-hugging black velvet gown with a plunging neckline. A 1924 print ad for the lingerie company read, New figures for old, and advertised the garment's ability to slim the hips as well as the waist of its wearer. The ad also promised flexible comfort, words we have probably all heard in contemporary advertising for various shapewear garments. The more things change, I suppose. Speaking of comfort and bringing waistbands into focus, the first sweatpants were introduced in 1920 by Le Coq Sportif, a French brand founded by Emile Camusset. Le Coq Sportif means the athletic rooster, a nod to the Gallic rooster, a symbol of France. Camusset started his company in 1882 in Romilly-sur-Seine in the northern part of central France, making athletic shirts and jerseys for friends of his who were cyclists, rugby players, and the like. Featuring drawstring waists at first, sweatpants were made of a jersey-knit wool, giving them the needed flexibility and comfort for a number of athletic pursuits. They would later be made out of cotton jersey. Of course, they were a lovely shade of light gray. Truly, Le Coq Sportif was ahead of its time, establishing the earliest version of gray sweatpants season. The brand is still active today. Just a footnote, the sweatshirt first appeared in about 1926, said to have been the invention of Benjamin Russell Jr., a football player for Alabama's Crimson Tide, though he came from Kentucky. Russell's name in the form of Russell Athletics still graces tags in the back collars of many sweatshirts today. 
since their introduction by Le Coq Sportif, sweatpants gained popularity and made their way to athletic events across the globe, including the Olympics in the 1930s. In 1925, Jacob Gollum introduced a pair of lightweight shorts with an elasticized waist meant to allow athletes space and mobility to execute light footwork. Gollum's company was Everlast, and the garment was the boxer short. It represented a departure from the leather belt and tights or long johns that fighters had worn up to this point. Because the earliest forms did not offer enough support, it would be a moment before boxers really caught on more than a decade later. 1930 brought the invention of Lastex, a rubber cord yarn encased in another fabric, usually wool, cotton, rayon, or silk. Rayon, for reference, had been invented in 1846 as an artificial alternative to silk, but wasn't widely manufactured until about 1911. It didn't get the name Rayon until the 1920s. Lastex was trademarked and hit the market about a year later in 1931. Lastex is usually attributed to a company called the Adamson Brothers, which was tied to the large U.S. rubber company. I'll explain. James and Percy Adamson set up shop in 1926. They'd been developing new types of threads. By most accounts, Percy was the scientific mastermind behind the operation. He got in touch with U.S. rubber, and the latter agreed to pay him for his invention, make the material, and pay him additional royalties. Though the material entered the market in 1931, it really became a thing in about 1934-35, when Cooper's, an American underwear company, launched the Jockey Y-Front, basically an early brief. The Y-Front kicked off major changes in men's underwear providing more support with its lastex-edged leg openings and branded waistband. The U.S. rubber company was not the only American company looking at the elasticized fabric market. Chemical giant DuPont was also getting in on the action. DuPont had been around since 1802. Founded in Delaware by Ulithère Irénée du DuPont, it started off in the explosives business. In 1930, DuPont introduced the world to polychloroprene. You might be more familiar with its other name. Neoprene. Neoprene was and is a synthetic rubber material. It has a high tensile strength and is flame and oil resistant. In 1934, Alexander Simpson had a brilliant idea that brings us to the peak of today's story arc. Alexander Simpson was the son of Simeon Simpson, who, despite having a name that rather resembles something imagined by the likes of Charles Dickens, was a real person who founded the London fashion house of Dax in 1894, which still exists today. The elder Simpson had originally planned to set up a bespoke tailoring business, however, modern technology of the day had other plans. Using machinery that was able to make buttonholes and cut through layers of fabric, Simpson began exploring the possibilities of ready-to-wear garments. It wasn't long before he had several factories in the city nicknamed the Big Smoke. His younger son Alexander joined the business in 1917. Alexander was an athletic sort of bloke. He needed his clothing to be able to move as he did, while keeping his shirt in place, particularly while playing golf and that sort of thing. Belts and braces had tendencies to dig into his body in less than comfortable ways. So, he cut up some rubbery material and placed it along the inside waistband of his trousers. These pieces didn't quite do what he needed them to, but sensing he was going in the right direction, he cut a tunnel into the waistband of his pants and added an elastic band inside said tunnel. This innovation helped Alexander's shirt stay tucked in and gave the pants a little more support without discomfort. The pants were a hit and set a new precedent. Le Coq Sportif would introduce the tracksuit in 1939, debuting it under the name The Sunday Suit. 
suggesting that its purpose was for relaxation and exercise. The iconic Adidas model that would take the look to new heights would appear a couple of decades later in 1967, but we'll get to that in just a moment. The biggest shifts towards wearable elastics as we know them today really happened during the 1940s. World War II began in the European theater in 1939, and the war effort became the number one priority in many countries. This meant limiting personal access to a number of resources, clothing and textiles being among them. Clothing was being rationed in Germany from August 27, 1939 onward, and anyone seeking to purchase materials had to pass a particular needs test. In Britain, the Board of Trade began placing restrictions on fabrics and materials on June 1, 1941, months before the U.S. joined the fray at the end of that year. This rationing, also referred to as austerity regulations, affected clothing production in a big, big way. Men's shirts got shorter and suiting got simpler, reducing yardage as much as possible. No more turn-ups or cuffs on men's trousers or double-breasted jackets, for example. Similar restrictions were applied in the U.S. and France. Elastic and rubber were among the first things rationed for the war effort, although in the U.K. elastic was still allowed in the production of women's undergarments. Elastic and rubber were used to make equipment. One airplane used approximately a half ton of rubber to give you a sense of just how much was needed. Battleships used nearly 75 tons. Elastics and rubberized materials were also used to make uniform components, boots, backpack straps, etc. Boxer shorts, which had become a bit more uplifting since Everlast first introduced them, were issued to members of the various military branches. After the war ended in 1945, the rubber industry, which had developed and expanded to accommodate the war effort, changed direction. Boxers remained popular as veterans had become accustomed to the support and comfort they provided. Boxers and briefs containing elastic became ubiquitous, and the material remained popular in women's underwear as well. Clothing during the war had to be simpler, as a matter of convenience, and to meet the strict rationing guidelines. Women had filled many positions once occupied by men as the war raged on. They had gone to work in offices and factories, and styles had gotten boxier and more utilitarian. I also want to point out that domestic servitude dropped by more than 50% between 1940 and 1950. More and more women took over housework themselves. The period from 1945 to 1960s saw an economic explosion in the United States. Affordable mortgages for returning servicemen resulted in an increased housing market, and rising Cold War tensions in the late 1940s through the 1950s sent many Americans seeking a sense of security, turning their attentions towards home and family. An unprecedented number of babies were born, a veritable boom to be sure, and rigid gender norms came back into play. The 1950s saw a transition from the functional, angularly shouldered utilitarian garments that women wore through the war to soft, rounded silhouettes. Busts expanded and got a little pointy. Waists shrank back in, and hips flared back out. Hyper-feminine wasped waists and full skirts, as well as fitted, curve-hugging pencil skirts, dominated the decade until about 1956 to 8-ish. The elasticized girdle and bras with conical cups and stretching straps and bands underpinned these looks. They held some things in and padded some things out, while allowing for a full range of motion, a necessity for the modern woman, whether she was a stay-at-home wife and mother or a dedicated part of the outside workforce. 
the 1950s also saw the introduction of a material we all know and some of us love more than others. Spandex, or Lycra, was debuted by DuPont in 1958. The polyether polyurea copolymer, a derivative from oil, was developed by Joseph Shivers. Shivers lived from 1920 to 2014, starting at DuPont in 1946. He was instrumental in the success of materials like Orlan, which was a fiber made of acrylic resin. He also helped develop the performance material Dacron polyester. It was while working on Dacron that Shivers came across Lycra. Lycra was soft and comfortable, very stretchy, and could bounce right back after being pulled across a three-dimensional body. And it was able to withstand different temperatures. It was easily spun into fibers and wasn't wrecked when it was exposed to sweat or the chemicals found in lotions, deodorants, and detergents. Elastic loop hair ties, as we know them today, hit store shelves in the 50s as well. They followed Stephen Perry's 1845 rubber bands in design, and while the concept wasn't entirely new, the Massachusetts-based Hook Brown Company got the patent in 1958. From the late 1940s, elastic cording has graced sewing supply shop shelves, say that five times fast, sewing supply shop shelves, as they do to this day. Shirts, skirts, and dresses were popular for both women and girls in the 1950s. The technique of gathering fabric at a one and a half or two to one ratio also appeared at this time on things like swimwear. Latex and rubber fetish wear also had a moment around this time. It had existed behind closed doors pretty much since Macintosh, but got a bit more publicity with the surge of interest in leather and motorcycle gear in the United States following the Second World War. We'll get more into that in another episode. The first rubber cat suit came out in the late 1950s. The British designer John Sutcliffe became known for his creations in leather, rubber, and latex as we know it today, as opposed to the earlier definition I referenced in this episode, good old-fashioned tree juice. This was definitely not that. Sutcliffe opened his shop Adam Age in 1957 in Hampstead, and was one of the first designers to get these materials out in the open. He was able to devise a method of assembling garments from rubber and latex that didn't involve gluing. Instead, he attached muslin fabric to the rubber or latex, which allowed the material to be sewn easily. While some fashion trends in the 1950s, mostly worn by younger people, leaned toward the more casual, most people still didn't leave their homes without things like gloves, hats, and hosiery at the time. That really took a turn in the 1960s facilitated in no small part to the invention of the birth control and the sexual revolution, the civil rights movement, widespread decolonization, anti-war protests, and a broader social interest in the environment. Society as a whole took a more casual approach to dressing, and that began to transcend the delineations of gender and age. Synthetic materials like polyester prevailed, and fashions were determined more and more by the youth. Trends changed quickly, and music, film, then television set the tone. Television would also increase the visibility of professional sports, including baseball, basketball, and football. It would impact everything from team uniforms to players' salaries and the way both fans and athletes were presented in public. In the 1960s, women's pants got tighter and were made of elasticized knit fabric. These were often worn with flats and usually ended around the ankle. Designers like Mary Quant popularized them and sometimes put them under short dresses and tunics. In the 1970s, 
designers including Vivian Westwood picked up where the likes of John Sutcliffe had left off in the 1950s and 60s. These young designers contributed to a wider and more visible market for garments featuring rubber and latex elements. Furthermore, the 1960s and 70s saw the rise of athletic wear as casual dress. Fitness and outdoor recreational activities had become far more mainstream after World War II for both men and women, and the unofficial uniforms of these activities figured heavily into the youth-centric movement of the 1960s and into the 70s. Athleisure was here to stay. Stretchy, slim-fitting pants only got tighter and brighter. Glam rock showed up in the early 1970s, bringing with it clinging garments that emphasized the body, set upon the pedestal of large platform shoes. During the 1970s, musicians like Debbie Harry and Olivia Newton-John, and TV shows like Charlie's Angels, also made stretchy and elastic-waisted pants very popular. It's important to remember that while leggings and elasticized pants were popular in some circles through the 1960s, pants were not permissible for women to wear in a number of public settings. These included courtrooms and offices, as well as luxury hotels, restaurants, and department stores. London's famous department store, Harrods, for example, changed their rules to allow women to wear pants inside in 1970. Musical styles like disco and hip-hop also had something to do with the popularization of stretchy pants. In order to dance to both types of music, a stretchy waistband was a very functional solution. The 1970s were huge for hip-hop. DJs and MCs emerged, and some pretty major ones at that. The Last Poets, a group that came out of the civil rights movement, released their self-titled debut album in 1970. Clive Campbell, a Jamaican DJ known on stage as DJ Cool Herc, was a heavy hitter in the Bronx in New York from around 1973, and Grandmaster Flash began making a name for himself in 1974. This is just naming a few of the influential figures to emerge in the early 70s. The impact of hip-hop music on the fashion industry has been a profound one. Block parties hosted by the performers I just mentioned and a ton of others gave rise to styles that will be forever linked to the musical genre. These events saw the popularization of casual and street styles that featured baggy silhouettes, nameplate and oversized gold jewelry, and hats from Kangol. These items and many more became synonymous with hip-hop fashion. Tracksuits, especially Adidas ones, were an integral part of the scene. Moving into the 1980s, exercise remained a popular pastime. With Jane Fonda popularizing her workout tapes from the early 80s, leggings and other stretchy garments like leotards became more visible, moving from aerobic studios and private living rooms to malls, city sidewalks, school hallways, and everywhere in between. The 1980s saw Hems climb up wearer's calves, down around the ankle, and even down under the foot, which I'll get into in a second. Megastars like Madonna, Cyndi Lauper, and Tina Turner wore leggings in various colors and styles. The garment in question even graced the runways of some of international fashion's biggest names. Sweatpants also remained very visible. Associated with students and athletes, they were linked to youth and vitality. The tracksuit, since its inception in 1939, remained associated with leisure and comfort. The classic Adidas tracksuit I mentioned earlier took its place in history in 1967. Music only further cemented the outfit's place in pop culture and fashion consciousness. In 1986, Run DMC's song My Adidas came out. 
The lyrics of the song show how thoroughly entwined hip-hop music and the athletic wear brand were by that point, in the mid-1980s. Adidas, by the way, was founded in a small German town in 1924 by Adolf Adi Dassler in his family's laundry room after Dassler's return from World War I. Following Run DMC's performance of the song at Madison Square Garden in 1988, execs from the shoe company signed the group to a million-dollar deal on the spot. That is over 2.6 million U.S. dollars today. Run DMC then had a custom Adidas-branded shoe created. Sweatpants and leggings stuck around through the 1990s. The late 1980s and early 90s saw leggings emerge with straps or stirrups under the feet. I'm not sure about y'all, but I remember having a pair of these at one time. The straps or stirrups were meant to keep the leggings from shifting upwards during activities like horseback riding and skiing. Full disclosure, I wasn't doing any of those in 1995. The brand Lululemon opened its doors in 1998. Stretchy bottoms, leggings, and yoga pants were and still are the brand's bread and butter. Just three years earlier, in 1995, another brand that focused on blending comfort and style debuted. This company would become known for a plush velour tracksuit that officially hit stores in 2001, the Juicy Tracksuit. Juicy was started by Pamela Skates-Levy and Gila Nash-Taylor. The comfortable outfit in question appeared on the likes of Paris Hilton, Jennifer Lopez, and Lindsay Lohan. It was one of the first really clear examples of influencer fashion in a sense, spread more by the pages of tabloids and entertainment rags than high fashion magazines. I will definitely get more into this topic at a later date, but I bring it up here because of its glitzier place in the history of the elastic waistband. Some of Juicy's critics considered the ensemble on par with wearing one's PJs out in public. Wearing actual pajamas in public, though, has been on more than one occasion quite the fashion statement. In 2012, for example, an article written by Elizabeth Holmes appeared in the Wall Street Journal. The January 19, 2012 article describes how retailers like Abercrombie & Fitch and American Eagle were shifting to meet teenage trends by increasing their stocks of leggings and sweatpants. That same year, celebrities including Sofia Coppola, Kristen Bell, and Rihanna stepped out in sleepwear, or at least looks very much inspired by it. Rihanna's pajamas were by Emilio Pucci, of course. Even then, this wasn't the first time that was done. An article published in the New York Times on April 20, 1929, details a bet made by Samuel Nelson, a barber from New Jersey. Nelson claimed that he could walk from Newark to Irvington in pajamas without catching the eyes of the law. No dice. He was quickly arrested, but the judge at his trial thought the whole thing was idiotic and freed him. There was a period in the early 2000s where there was kind of a reaction against leggings in public spaces. However, that really didn't last that long, and by 2005, they were on their way back. Calf-length ones began peeking out under miniskirts and so forth. Initially, in the late 1990s or so, yoga pants, because you know I couldn't leave them out of this talk about snug and stretchy slacks, were made of mostly lycra, with a bit of nylon thrown in for comfort. Today, leggings can be found in these materials, as well as a host of other performance fabrics that do fancy things like control odor and wick away moisture. Regardless, leggings and sweatpants are not relegated to gyms and parks and other places where they need to fulfill this athletic purpose. Comfortable, elasticized pants are absolutely everywhere. Stretchy fibers have made their way into suits and work separates for years at this point. 
The past couple of years following a global pandemic that relegated us to our homes has even further impacted these discussions and what constitutes workwear, as more employees have taken to working from home or remotely than ever before. During pandemic lockdown, it was important to maintain a professional front, but it was very easy to get away with keeping that from the waist up. How many of us have done a Zoom meeting or call either sans pants or in leggings or sweatpants? With the popularization of casual dress over the past several decades, the influence of stretch fabrics cannot be overstated. In a 2001 Vogue interview, the often controversial designer Karl Lagerfeld said, Sweatpants are a sign of defeat. You have lost control of your life, so you bought some sweatpants. Sorry, Carl. Though I am someone who is particular about where I will wear sweatpants and leggings, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that. Sweatpants and leggings and their elastic waists aren't showing signs of going anywhere. Today, they can be found in fabrics from cotton jersey and lycra to canvas, denim, satin, and leather as they flop out on plush homey couches and grace the designer runways of Paris, Milan, London, and New York. Thank you for listening to today's episode of History Unhemmed. History Unhemmed is hosted, written, and researched by me and produced by Gary Avazov. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook and leave us a review. Also, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you're interested in supporting the show, we are on Patreon and Spotify for podcasters, formerly known as Anchor. Links are in the show notes. Feel free to say hello on social media or drop us a line at historyunhemmedpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening.